Good morning, and thank you, Kevin, for your sensitive and spirit-led prayer. May the Lord answer it. Well, we're continuing today our four-week series in the book of Ruth. Four chapters in the book of Ruth, and we get one Sunday per chapter. Today's the third, so we're in chapter three. And this is the chapter where we reach the climactic moment of this book, this beautiful short story. And in so many ways, uh, this is true for every chapter, of course, Ruth and Naomi and their story, it's like a sparkling diamond, like a, like a glittering gem against a dark backdrop. And it showcases for us, by way of contrast, how God's unceasing kindness abounds even in a moment where it seems like all hope is lost, where it seems like God is nowhere to be found. Over the past two Sundays, we've been reminded, both Sundays, that this story is set during the time of the judges. It's that period of time after the armies of Israel, led by Joshua, had conquered Canaan, but before the time of the kings, Solomon and, or, uh, Saul, David, Solomon, and so on. So this is that in-between time when we're told that men did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time of immorality and lawlessness abounding among God's people. And so in that way, it is a dark backdrop, but there is yet another way in which the backdrop of Ruth is dark, and it's something that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the writing of this book, wants us to notice, and the clues for this come near the end of chapter 4, where our attention is drawn to the family line of Elimelech and Boaz, and we are told that they're descended from a man named Perez. So family history, it's a really big deal in the Bible, and it makes sense because the nation of Israel is essentially one large extended family descended from Abraham and through his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, whose name became Israel and whose 12 sons became the tribes of Israel. So the Jews didn't need 23 and me to tell them who their ancestors were. They knew They knew who begat who from which tribe and through each generation. There's genealogies all throughout the Old Testament. And throughout the generations, they clung to the promises that God had given to Abraham. The promise that his descendants would become a mighty nation, that kings would come from him, and that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But if you read the stories about this family, especially in the first few generations, how they treated each other, the things they did to each other, you can't help but wonder how God could possibly bring any good from such a broken, dysfunctional people. And the family line of Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband, and Boaz, his relative, was shamefully stained from a situation very similar to Ruth's situation, one that resulted in appalling scandal, so much so that an entire chapter of Genesis is devoted to it, chapter 38. You don't need to turn there. Uh, This is a complicated story that I won't retell in great detail. I do know we have some children here, and that's good. Um, So just a quick summary. That'll be enough, and I'll, I'll do that without the sordid details. So Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He was the the father, the figurehead of the tribe of Judah. And we're told in Genesis 38 that there was a woman named Tamar who married his eldest son, but that son died, 
leaving Tamar, a widow, without children. Does that sound familiar to you? And years went by. Judah was obligated to take care of her. He had promised to take care of her, but he did not fulfill his promise. And at some point, Tamar became very desperate. And so we're told in Genesis 38 that Tamar washed herself, put on perfume, put on her best clothes, and she disguised herself and she hid her face and she went into the nearby town and positioned herself in the ancient equivalent of a red light district, expecting that her father-in-law would come her way and show some interest. And she was right. It doesn't say a lot for Judah's character. And so, and I'll skip over the details, you can fill in the blanks, she became pregnant. And it was her way of forcing Judah to take care of her because now she had borne his child. And the name of that child was Perez. This is the backstory. This is the direct ancestor of Elimelech and Boaz. And the narrator of Ruth reminds us of this not once, but twice in chapter 4. The Bible doesn't back away from stories that make us cringe. Without sugarcoating it, God's word lays the depravity of humanity out before us, reminding us that nothing is hidden from his sight. Nothing escapes his notice. We're intended to learn and to remember these stories lest we gloss over how utterly lost all of humanity truly is. And we are too, outside of God's amazing grace. How God could save a covenant people for himself out of stories like this is incredible. And so it's with this backdrop in mind that we turn our attention now to Ruth. And let me give you a sense of where we're going today. We're going to start with a little bit of review, especially helpful if anybody's missed the first two weeks. And then we'll, we'll go into chapter three. And at the moment where we get to that climactic moment of really the whole book, we'll pause and make six observations about how people, both in this time and in our own, relate to God through faith. And then we'll finish out the chapter. So, first, by way of review, Naomi and Ruth, both widows, have come to Bethlehem from Moab. Naomi is coming back to her own people. Ruth is coming as a foreigner. The narrator goes out of his way to remind us of this multiple times, referring to Ruth as the Moabitess. But Ruth the Moabitess has also embraced Yahweh as her God. She's forsaken the idols of her people. In chapter 1, there's kind of a contrast between Naomi and Ruth. In chapter 1, Naomi is full of bitterness. In her own words, she left Bethlehem full but came back empty. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She blames God for it and she believes the Almighty is set against her. And then by contrast, we have Ruth who from the get-go has been acting like a mature believer. She is full of virtue and character and courage. She's stuck by her mother-in-law. She's vowed never to leave her. And she's made the God of Israel her God as well. And then in chapter 2, we saw these two women who are now in Bethlehem, but now they're destitute. They don't have any food. So Ruth takes the initiative and she asks Naomi for permission to go into the fields behind the harvesters and to glean what grain they have left behind. And this was a bold act of faith. It's faith because she was taking action based on the promises of God in his word. 
She knew that God had commanded Israel to provide for the poor in this way, allowing them to glean behind the harvesters. And so she was taking a step of faith and she found herself in this field belonging to Boaz who was unknown to her. But she found that she she was shown by him much kindness and generosity. And as Pastor Brandon pointed out last week, this was not because Ruth was an attractive single young woman and he was a lonely older single guy. Not a bit. It was because he knew what Ruth had done for Naomi, the widow of his dead relative. And Boaz was deeply moved by her kindness to her mother-in-law. Near the end of chapter 2, we learn from Naomi that Boaz is a family redeemer. Ruth didn't know that at the time. Some translations call that a kinsman redeemer, family redeemer, kinsman redeemer. It's the same thing. And we'll explore that a little bit more in the next few minutes. And then finally, chapter 2 ends by telling us that Ruth continued to work in Boaz's fields throughout the entire harvest season, both the wheat and the barley harvest. This would have been a period of six or seven weeks. So that amount of time is separating the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Enough time for Naomi to ponder in her heart how God had led them to Boaz, this family redeemer who has shown them favor, and to begin to ponder what that might mean. It's, so, it's just really interesting. In chapter 1, we see Naomi praying over her widowed daughters-in-law, only one of which stayed, and she prayed, May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. So could it be, she might be wondering, could it be God is finally answering a prayer? There's a glimmer of hope penetrating Naomi's bitter heart. Maybe God has not forgotten. So, chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read this together. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he is finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went down He went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Naomi knew that this was a unique moment in time, at the end of the harvest, when for this one day only, it was certain where Boaz would be, what he would be doing, and what his frame of mind was likely to be. They had already discerned his godly character, and they knew God's word. They knew that just as God had made provision For the poor to harvest behind the harvesters, so also God had made provision for a widow who was destitute, whose family line had no heirs. Leviticus 25 describes how a qualified relative had the right to redeem or to buy back the land of a relative so that it could stay in the family. Deuteronomy 25 describes how a qualified male relative of a childless widow had an obligation to marry the widow and continue the family line. And in this case, both provisions from God's word are coming together 
in one situation. And so this plan that Naomi and Ruth are undertaking is also a bold step of faith, trusting God's word and with a little creative initiative thrown in. However, as a caveat, I do think we have to acknowledge that Naomi's advice to Ruth is a far cry from timeless relationship advice for pursuing a godly marriage. This is a plan of action that only makes sense if you're a young widow living 3,000 years ago in the time of the judges with a widowed mother-in-law who's related to a righteous man in Israel who happens to be a family redeemer and is going to be winnowing his harvest that evening. Outside of that, this is not a go-and-do-likewise type of Bible lesson. I kissed Moab goodbye should not be the next dating craze for Christians. But this was Ruth's situation. And even still, this was a risky plan. There was a reason in chapter 2 that Boaz had to instruct his young men not to touch her. And there was a reason in chapter 2 that Boaz had advised her to stay close with his female servants throughout the whole harvest and not go into another field. Because Ruth was not safe wandering about on other fields during the day, let alone at night. And there was a reason that people slept inside the safety of the city walls. The only exception for that was during the winnowing of a harvest. And we see from the text, this was a time of celebration and gladness, but at the end of the feasting, Boaz wasn't just taking a nap in the haystack. He was protecting his property and ensuring it wasn't stolen in the night, which is why he goes to the far end, to the dark end of the pile where his harvest would have been most vulnerable and also where he was out of sight. Now, had Ruth and Boaz not been two godly people of noble character, what happened next could have turned out quite differently. This scene has so many similarities to what happened between Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. Like Tamar, Ruth is a widow in need, and she's been reduced to a point of desperation. And like Tamar, she's taking matters into her own hands, and she has an objective in mind. Like Tamar, she's washed put on perfume, and put on her best clothes. Now, Tamar's scheme was one of seduction and entrapment. What would happen to Ruth? And how would Boaz respond? So Ruth does exactly what Naomi instructed. She goes to the harvest, but she remains hidden. She makes sure she knows exactly where Boaz is sleeping because it would be scandalous if she mistook someone else for him. And then once he's asleep, Ruth goes and she uncovers his feet and waits. So starting again now in verse 8. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and lying there at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Then he said, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But 
if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. What an extraordinary relief for Ruth. You can just imagine how her heart must have leapt as she listened to Boaz responding positively to her. Up until this moment of time, she had no idea what was going to happen. What if his character had not been what it seemed? What if in his grogginess he had taken advantage of her and not realized who she was? Or what if he had recognized her but assumed that her intentions were immoral and he sent her away with her reputation tarnished? Perhaps these concerns are why Ruth does not mince her words but gets right to the point and identifies herself and then immediately asks Boaz to take her under his wing. Literally in the Hebrew, take me under the wing of your garment, which is a euphemism, um, a metaphor for marriage. So Ruth is proposing to Boaz. Now, this past Monday was Valentine's Day. And it's really easy to read this passage through rose-colored glasses and imagine that this was a romantic scene. We might imagine that over the past few weeks there have been some sweet Romantic moments when Ruth's eyes and Boaz's eyes met briefly. There's some attraction there, but they're not quite sure how to move closer together until this magical moment on the threshing floor. But the problem is that there's nothing in the text anywhere, not a single thing in all of Ruth to suggest that this is what was happening. Think about it. If Boaz had designed to pursue Ruth romantically, the last thing that he would have done is remind her in literally every conversation that he's old enough to be her dad calling her my daughter each time. No, Boaz sees what Ruth is doing and recognizes it as an act of immense kindness. And he says so in verse 10. He says, you have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. But, and here's a key question, who is Ruth being kind to? Is Boaz thanking Ruth for for her kindness and noticing an older guy like him who thought love had passed him by? Again, no. The kindness that Boaz has in mind is Ruth's kindness to Naomi. He recognizes that Ruth is approaching him because he is one of the few people qualified to redeem both Naomi and Ruth and to buy back their land and to father an heir, not for his own name and legacy, but for Naomi's dead husband, Limelech, and her dead son, Malin. So Ruth's proposal is utterly selfless. And she's appealing to the righteous character of Boaz under God's word when she asks him to redeem her and Naomi, and he can do this because he's a family redeemer. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment to take a closer look at the concept of a redeemer in the Old Testament. Sometimes we talk about redeeming the time, and when we say things like that, we mean to make good use of it. But redeemer, the term redeemer in the Old Testament is very specific. So here it is in Leviticus 25.25. It says, If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property... Their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. Same chapter, verse 48, speaking of someone who sold themselves into slavery, it says, They retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. One of their relatives may redeem them. And so in the Hebrew context, 
a qualified family member who buys back a person or a land that has been lost. That's what a family redeemer does so that the family line may not be extinguished. But that's not the only place that redeemer shows up in scripture. That same word is also used in Proverbs and the prophets. Proverbs 23.10, don't move an ancient boundary marker and don't encroach on the fields of the fatherless for their redeemer is strong and he will champion their cause against you. There are no capital letters in Hebrew. Who is the redeemer here? Is it a human being or is it God? Try this one, Jeremiah 50, 34. Their redeemer is strong. The Lord of armies is his name. He will fervently champion their cause so that he might bring rest to the earth. So you see, increasingly as you progress throughout the Old Testament, and then especially when you get to the prophets, when you read about a redeemer, it's a reference to God. The great redeemer whose heart is always inclined toward the powerless, the helpless, the destitute, the vulnerable, but God does not impose himself on those who do not want him to be their redeemer. And this begs the question, redeemer of what and from what? By the time we get to the first century, the messianic expectation of the Jews was that God was going to redeem the nation politically. And they were thinking about the restoration of their land and the freedom from the Romans, which is why on the road to Emmaus, two followers of Jesus, who after his death had not yet heard of his resurrection, and they spoke about Jesus saying, we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. So they expected the Messiah to be a redeemer. What they did not understand yet was that Jesus, the true and better redeemer, had just accomplished the ultimate act of redemption in his death and resurrection, a redemption that had been planned since before the foundation of the world. The Apostle Paul writes in Titus 2.14 that he... Speaking of Jesus, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. So God had foreshadowed this plan of redemption in Christ and had written his very heart into these provisions in the law of Moses. The whole idea of a family redeemer, someone who is of the same blood and therefore qualified to redeem, who could buy back at a price what was otherwise hopelessly lost. And even leveret marriage, the kind that we're reading about here in Ruth, was also in that category of actions that only a family redeemer could take. Nobody else could do it, no matter how wealthy, no matter how noble their intentions. And all of these things were pointing to and foreshadowing the one the one who would enter into the family bloodline of humanity and at the greatest imaginable cost, buy back that which had otherwise been hopelessly lost with no hope of self-redemption and then to take them under his wing, we who in the New Testament are called the bride of Christ. So when you view the story of Ruth through the lens of the whole story of Scripture, this is the main point. Boaz, the Redeemer, is a picture of Christ, the Redeemer. And the Holy Spirit is showing us what Jesus has done for us in a way that our hearts can understand. Because we enter into the story, don't we, when we read it. Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, these are real people in history. Their story is true. 
But in God's sovereignty, their, their story functions like a parable, pointing us to Jesus and revealing six facets of covenant faith. And in sharing these, I want to give full credit to Christopher Ash, who originally made these observations, and they're just simply too good not to share. So number one, faith is intentional, as in deliberate. Our, word, our world often uses the word faith as though it was some sort of positive energy that you could possess inside yourself, but that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is intentional proactivity. It steps out and it walks on the bedrock of trust. Faith is one step after another. Faith must move you, like Ruth and Naomi, to take God at his word. And they knew it was time to act. So second, faith is vulnerable. Christopher Ash writes, True faith abandons all other securities. What we are going to watch Ruth doing is a very risky thing. In doing what Naomi says, Ruth abandons all the vestiges of safety and security that she might have held on to. She is going to entrust herself to one redeemer, believes that he will protect her and treat her right. She has no other hope. And how much more so when you place your exclusive faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our only hope in life and death. Faith is vulnerable. Three, faith is intimate. Intimate as in personal, as in one-on-one. As a follower of Jesus, yes, you do become part of the body of Christ. You enter into God's covenant community. But Jesus describes the doorway to the kingdom of heaven as a narrow gate. Sort of like a turnstile. It only pass, you can only pass through one person at a time. And in Ruth, we see this as a private conversation between her and her Redeemer with nothing held back. Total truth, bare honesty. And likewise, faith is deeply personal between you and God. No one else can exercise it for you. Faith is individual, personal, and intimate. And number four, faith is grounded in covenant promises. And this one is really, really important. Faith has content. Faith is not subjective. It's objective. Boaz was a family redeemer for Naomi's family, and he had a covenant obligation as an Israelite to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And when Ruth asked Boaz to redeem her, she wasn't being audacious or inappropriately forward. She had the right to ask because she had become part of God's covenant community. And in the same way, you and I have the right, given by God, to call upon God for that which he has promised to do for us in Christ. We can come, like Ruth, to Christ saying that you have promised to be a redeemer for me. Now do what you have promised. Take me under the wing of your garment. Sometimes those who struggle with assurance of faith have a shaky understanding of God's promises and his character because it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of the one in whom you have placed it that saves you. God keeps his covenant promises to the uttermost without exception. Number five, faith is effective 
This is the second part of the equation. So faith is grounded in covenant promises. And because of that, faith is effective. If you've called upon the Redeemer to make good on his covenant promises, that request will be accepted. And for this, simply look at the response of Boaz to Ruth. There's no hesitation. You don't pick up between the lines anything that sounds like, rats, you found me. Or, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. Or, well, I don't really want to, but I guess now I have to. Not a bit. Boaz is eager. He desires to do this. When day breaks, he immediately takes action with joy. And likewise, Jesus is not your reluctant Savior. He's your joyful Redeemer. He's eager to do this. He's eager for those who have not yet come to him to call upon him. And now, to lead us in the sixth facet of faith, I want to pick up the last part of chapter 3, starting in verse 14. It says, So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl and she went into the town. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, my daughter. Wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest unless he resolves this today. So once again, the Redeemer is not reluctant but eager. And Boaz sends Ruth away while it's still dark so that she could leave without anyone noticing that she'd been there. He's concerned about her reputation, but he does not send her away with only his promise, although that would have been enough. He sends her away with a deposit on that promise. It's his personal guarantee of what's to come. The six measures of barley may have been the only means Boaz had in that moment to honor Naomi, much in the way that a man would pay a dowry to the family of a future bride to signify his good intentions. And so in this way, Boaz is giving something of value to Naomi. But in a way, it's more than that. As a redeemer, He's committed to caring for both of their needs from this day onward. And right now, right here with this, he's making good on that already. In a sense, he's already providing for their daily bread, even though the final fulfillment of his promise still lies in the future. And that brings us to the sixth facet of faith. Number six, faith involves waiting. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is filled with the tension of already and not yet. And until the redemption is complete, that tension will remain. Ruth has received a promise. And she believes that it's going to come to pass. Boaz is going to prove himself to be a redeemer who is wise and cunning. He is able to bring about what he has promised. But what happens next will have to be done outside Ruth's field of vision. She will not be party 
to what Boaz will accomplish on her behalf. All she can do is receive it by faith and wait. And we'll have to wait until next week for that resolution when Blake Glosson comes and concludes our last chapter in Ruth. But before we wrap this up today, there is one more point to make. So earlier we referenced that scandalous story between Judah and Tamar. It was a story with so many similarities to this one. And those similarities are no mistake. So were Ruth and Boaz thinking about Judah and Tamar as everything unfolded for them? I doubt it. I think it was a facet of the diamond cut by the hand of God himself, redeeming a part of their storyline, their family's history, totally outside of their sight and yet revealed in the book of Ruth to us for his glory so that we could see it and benefit from it. Just because your story begins one way, just because your story has a precedent, that does not condemn the outcome of your story to simply be a repetition of what came before. God is able to redeem anyone's story in small ways and great ways. Do you have a memory from your past or your family's past, maybe, that haunts you? Maybe something others know about or quite possibly something almost no one knows about. These are the types of memories that are often the devil's choice ammunition to attack and accuse and extinguish all hope from our hearts that God's goodness could possibly apply to us to convince you that there's no way God could, as he promised in his word, remember your sins no more. To convince you maybe you're the exception. I don't know what comes to mind as you hear these words, but I do plead with you to hang on to this truth, that God redeems not only people, he redeems their stories. God redeems not only you, he redeems your story. No matter your history of sin, either done by you or against you, it doesn't matter. No matter your history, whatever it is that you desperately wish had never happened and could just stay buried forever, these are the very things that Jesus came to redeem. He is the God who removes shame, who removes guilt. And he is not ashamed to make you his own. Hebrews 2.11, speaking of Jesus, says that both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is our family redeemer. But Ruth would not have been redeemed if she had not come to Boaz seeking redemption, if she had not asked and likewise, Jesus does not impose himself on those who don't want to be redeemed by him. And in a worship service like this, there's, there's always people among us, almost always, who have not yet come to Christ for salvation. I wonder, could that be you? And others who, like Naomi, had walked away from God's covenant community, seeking prosperity for her life apart from him. But in either case, do you know today that the world's plans for self-redemption, and there are so many of them, religious 
or secular? Do you know that all of them are without exception utterly impotent? They don't work. They never will. Have you come to the end of yourself? Has God reduced you in your life to a point, a moment of desperation? And if he has, it could be simply so that you could see and feel the great chasm between you and God. Desperation can be a gift if it moves you to act in faith and to cry out to the only one who is qualified to redeem you. Jesus bore your sins. He bought you back at a price. He does this for all who come to him. And his resurrection seals that promise. Forgiveness can only be found when you draw near to Christ in faith, grounded on those covenant promises. And fellow believers in the Lord Jesus, we need to hear this and preach it to our own hearts on a daily basis because we are so prone to forget. We belong to our Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, we thank you for taking us under your wing, under your garment, for doing for us what we could possibly not do for ourselves. We couldn't have done it. You didn't reject us or turn away or condemn us like we deserve. You willingly took our sin and our brokenness on yourself. You were broken that we might be healed. You were emptied that we might become full. And at great cost, you have made us sons and daughters in your family, and you've given us your Holy Spirit, your deposit, your guarantee that you will do what you have promised. So, Lord, give us faith to wait. We look to you, our Redeemer, with expectant hope, and we pray in the name of our Redeemer. Amen.